Greetings, greetings, my dear audience here in the United States and around the world. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I have to tell you, I grew up without a television, without a telephone back in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. And now last week I spoke on this show and the next day I received an email from Dubai. Who would think those times, those years, that something like this would be possible? I live in the world of science fiction, indeed. We live in times of incredible technological progress. Sadly, at the same time, I observe as expeditious and as indisputable social regress, not progress. With such dichotomy, uh, I don't know it, what it will do to our country and to our world. That remains unknown. We actually can make him back to this subject today. Once again, I want to thank all those who wrote emails to me, um, getting your feedback, reading your suggestions, and responding to your emails has become a pleasant part of my everyday routine by now. I want to remind others who would like to write to me. My email is uh, drpeterresnik at gmail.com, D-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N-I-K at gmail.com. And also, if you want to call us during the show today with your comments or and uh, your questions, you can do this as well. Uh, the number to call today is 888-874-4888. Once again, 888-874-4888. And as always, first I want to remind you of what we did during the last week's show and what, we, what I intend to do next week on July 6th. Last Tuesday, I completed our journey through the subject of human morphology, or as they call it, um, face reading. I spoke about the different body types, their temperamental characteristics, and their appropriate activities, climate, and the diet for each. If you missed the talk, you can find it in the archives. Next week, I will go on to speaking about the six pillars of well-being. Uh, we're still on the fifth pillar, if I remember correctly. Uh, yes. And the fifth pillar is conscious beliefs, attitudes, and character traits. And I think I will choose to talk about doubt, that is, living in doubt versus being connected with your intuition. But today, ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special guest. Uh, oh, oh, wait, wait. <laughs> I forgot something. Before I introduce my guest to you, I want to make sure I keep my promise regarding the WIT, W-I-T, Will Integration Training, uh, a series of 12 exercises weekly, exercises designed to strengthen your willpower. During the last three shows, I already gave you the first three assignments. By the way, I received an interesting comment and a couple of questions regarding the wit from Gustav from Denmark. 
I will share his comments and questions next week. Today, I'm giving you the fourth exercise. Those who decide to follow the exercises, here is the exercise for the following week, the will exercise, will strengthening. Make a commitment that right after this show, until the next Tuesday, 2 p.m., this whole week, anytime you're about to go through the door, and usually doors have doorknobs, you pause just for a second, nobody will notice. And before you touch the doorknob, you hold your hand above the doorknob for a second, just pause for a second and mentally say to yourself, doorknob, and then no, that's all, then go through the door. And that is, of course, to dehabituate you. Remember, we are habitual creatures, that's why we react, we, and then we apologize because you say something you didn't mean, why? Because the stimulus comes, remember, like Pavlov's dogs, and, and you re react. And so this exercise is designed to create the space, time, pause between the stimulus and response to train your brain rather than to react because you, you're walking through the door. Usually you don't think, I'm going to go through the door, I'm going to turn the door knob. No, you just do it. But what I want you to do is to for one week to become aware of every choice you make. And the choice is to turn the doorknob. So all you do is you pause. That trains your brain to pause, to create uh, an interference between the stimulus, I want to go through the door, and the response, turning the doorknob. So you pause, say doorknob, and then go through the door. Practice, practice, practice. And now finally my guest. Most of you know him. In fact, almost every email I received starts with words. I have been listening to Gary Null for years. You know that he wrote 70 books, uh, I think more. Um, some of them became national bestsellers, produced over 100 videos. He has been fighting Monsanto, the pharmaceutical company, and against the treatments that harm more than help, and against crooked politicians, whether the crook is coming from the left or from the right. And someone would say, okay, this is a very busy guy, leave him alone. If I want, you know, I can listen to his show. In fact, I listen to his shows uh, um, every day and also to that Tuesday show um, uh, at, at, at seven o'clock in the evening. I will. Tell Hello, Gary. Hi, Peter. Nice Ladies to and be gentlemen, with you. Dr. Gary Null. <laughs> Hi, Gary. Hi, Peter. Nice to be Gary? with you. Yes, I'm here. Hi. I don't see you. I, I kind of expected you because we are talking through Skype. I expected to see you. I don't uh, have it down here yet. Oh, you are you in Florida or you are in Texas? No, I'm in Florida at the Animal Sanctuary. That's where I live. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much for accepting this invitation. I, I let me tell you why I wanted so much to to come uh, 
for this interview. You interview a lot of people. You interviewed me a number of times. You produce programs. You fight for, you know, before I met you 30, uh, 25 years ago, but I know knew of you and listened to you on uh, WBAI before I met you. Uh, but it's all people know you. And, and I went on, on uh, uh, YouTube and I listened to some interviews where you are interviewed, not you interviewing others. But it's always about your ideas, about what you suggest to people, who you are fighting, what is right, what is wrong. The reason I want you, there are actually a couple of reasons, but one of the main reasons I wanted you to come for this show is because I, I myself, because even though we, we, we know each other, I know Gary Null, the teacher, the, the heroic figure who, who is not scared of anyone. But I want to get to know Gary Null, the man, and I want my audience to go to get to know Gary Null, the man. What makes Gary Null tick? What, what are his likes and dislikes? Who is Gary Null as a person? Can you tell us about yourself? The core of my being is to look for the truth in all things, not be dissuaded by the illusion that we live by, because nothing is more sad than the death of an illusion, according to Arthur Kessler. And the task for those who care about life is to understand how do we become a nation of illusions, the illusion that if we buy a red car, it'll be... Uh, it'll be an adjunct to our sexuality. Or if we uh, wear a baseball cap or uh, some other cap to a game, that we then are an extension of that team. When the owners of the team just want us to put dollars in their pocket by putting people in seats, everything is an illusion. Now, some illusions are closer to the truth and others are extremely distant. For example, we all grew up at a time when we were told that uh, that we have to have dinner at a certain time. We would sit around the table, that the food we were eating was the best food possible for us. Home economics teachers told us we had to have the basic four food group, and yet it was the basic four food group that helped contribute to all of our parents' early demise, at least those who stuck to that principle of having meat three times a day, dairy three times a day, wheat three times a day. And so we thought it was normal to wake up, and you would have toast, um, either with butter or jam. Um, you would have milk, uh, pasteurized. You would also have bacon and eggs or possibly hot cereal. And that was considered okay. You had to have it. No one asked, what is the proof of any of this? We also thought it was normal to smoke, so much so that the American physicians would be happy to tell you if you came in and were stressed, smoking is good for you, it'll calm your nerves. And they reinforced that with full-page ads in the Journal of the American Medical Association where you saw Chesterfields are best for soothing stroke, uh, smoke. Uh, no, excuse me, Chesterfield was best Campbell, for Campbell, remember, Campbell is good for you, doctors say. <laughs> and and 47,000 doctors uh, recommend lucky strikes. 
And of course, it was it was all it was all lies. But then I grew up in a household where my father smoked four packs a day. My mother smoked three packs. My older brother smoked three packs. My younger brother smoked two packs. I didn't smoke, but I was I was there and with secondhand smoke. Everything smelled like cigarettes. And so everybody would walk around with little packs of Wrigley chewing gum to cover up some of the bad taste. But then when they'd have coffee and smoke, my God, you know, you couldn't tell the difference between a pig breathing on you and someone who had had coffee and, and cigarettes. And yet it was considered the end of a meal when everyone would have a cigarette and drink coffee. And if you didn't have dessert, then the meal wasn't complete. Now, mind you, we ate big portions, so no one needed that dessert. So it was normal then to have dessert, but it was also normal by the age of 25, everybody was overweight and no one was really athletic. The athleticism was um, something that people would do in the summertime when they would go swimming or hiking or play softball, but nothing on a daily basis. So when people would die in their 50s, that was considered normal. 60, you lived a long life. And so that created the illusion that disease and aging were were synonymous. And yet the truth is that there is no disease associated with authentic aging. There's diminishment, but not the way we have been taught. And as a result, we don't have a preventative aging program anywhere in the United States at an official level. The Surgeon General, no one tells us what to eat and how to, how to take care of our bodies. But we're all told to get a vaccine. We're all told this. So the core of my being is when I wake up in the morning, I ask myself, what can I do today to share with information to people that could help them live a longer and healthier life? But it's not just a matter of getting them healthy because getting a person healthy is relatively easy for me. Getting them even over serious diseases, even life-threatening diseases. I had 1,200 people with full-blown AIDS, all near death. Not one died. They all reversed their AIDS condition. And 18 of those 1,200 reversed their HIV positive, HIV negative status and complete health. And that was over a 15-year period. It took about 16 months to do it. But you can't get someone to be healthy if they're not happy. So then the cornerstone for me of helping a person get healthy is not to address the symptoms of their discomfort, but rather the imbalances in their life that have created a sense of, of false self. What then allows a person to feel complete? Is it their job, their success, their family, their children, their being a responsible person, a good father, good son? And so I look at everything that I can that goes into the composite of being a self. Then I have to relate that to everyone else and everything else in all circumstances, and I come up with five basic principles. These five principles tell you who I am. One, you will succeed in life more likely if you have the right idea, you're living in the right place, at the right time, with the right support system, and most importantly, you're the right person. If any one of those is missing, then our efforts are always limited. And therefore, we think something's wrong and we try it again. Or we are told, you know, work harder. And we are a hardworking nation. And we're told, well, uh, you know, you, you, weren't, you weren't in the right place. You opened your store in the wrong street, someone will say. Or someone else will say, 
well, I wasn't in the right relationship. I was in a, not a bad relationship, but we maladapt to the circumstances we're given and think this is the best that's going to happen. The older we get, the less likely we are to change anything and accept medications. Um, and we feel, I don't have to change. I put in my time. I've done my deed. So let me just live my remaining years, however long that is, in a comfortable place. And so we migrate to you know, uh, senior villages, to uh, gated communities. But we don't ask the basic question. What was the purpose of this life to begin with? So every day I keep asking the basic question, what is the purpose of my life? And then if the purpose of my life is if I have a gift, and that gift may be insight, the gift may be scholarship, the gift, gift may be uh, insights into the human condition, I share those. Because as my mother said, if you have a gift, give a gift. So if every day you have to give a gift and you know, okay, how can I give a gift and also give a gift of enlightenment, excitement, passion, pleasure, joy, happiness, laughter, love to myself so I'm not running around like an ever-ready battery bunny and draining myself just to see that everyone else's needs are met by being overly responsible. And a lot of people do everything for everyone else and then they're drained. And I was also one of those people. The difference is uh, throughout my career, I was always trying to take whatever success I had and never become my success. So in my life, I've never become my success. I'm not an author. I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not a, uh, let's say, an educator. Um, I'm not a, a, you know, cinematographer, a director of documentaries. Uh, I'm not an agriculturist, horticulturist, environmentalist. These are all names. The, these are monikers. I'm just a human being sharing what I know to the degree that I know anything and the degree that someone finds it important. I simply put the information out and then I detach from it. If a person uses it, good. That's what I'm hopeful. But if a person doesn't, I'm not, I'm not negative about it because I have to believe in freedom of choice. And a person can choose any part or whole of anything and then reconfigure it to meet their needs. So by looking at life not as an existential event to which we ultimately all arrive at this place we cannot escape, death, I say death is an absolute certainty, but how we die is within our power. And I've spent 33 years as a senior research fellow at the Institute of Biology, the head of the anti-aging division, showing that we can live a longer life, showing that none of the diseases like dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and diabetes, and heart disease are normal to the aging process. And also, for those who sought to be successful, and I've counseled thousands of them, not to take any success seriously. To enjoy it for a day. My mother said, if you have a reason to be happy about something that is successful, enjoy it for one day and let it go. Because the next day is a new day and you recreate your life every day. And so that said, um, I win races and I don't go and get the awards. I just, okay, I want a race, good. I'm on my way home. I'm, I'm thinking of the next thing. And as a result of that, I don't look back. I, I'm not living my life looking at the rearview mirror. I'm looking today. What can I do today? Now already today I've counseled about 16 people. And, uh, and I do this every day. 
And again, these are not people with trifling problems. These are serious, life-threatening, almost always terminal problems. And I counsel them once. That's it. Whatever I can share with someone that can help them, I'm going to give them. Nothing will be held back. But it all starts not with talking about their disease. In fact, Peter, you may not know this. I don't allow people to tell me about their disease. I don't go into their symptoms. I don't go into any of the, uh, any of the details at all. Instead, I look at from this moment forward, because that's all we can control, what choices do you need to make so that you're going to be healthier? And disease will not be your companion, but health will be. And to do that, you have to go to the core of what a person believes is the meaning of their life. Like Abraham Maslow said, Maslow said that those who were most likely to survive in concentration camps had something greater to live for than the privations and suffering of the moment they were in. So then I ask a person, what passions do you still have or would love to have in life? And almost always the first thing is, well, well, what are you talking about? I'm here with terminal cancer. What the hell does that have to do with anything, you know? And I say, okay, well, you've already tried surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, and it reduced the cancer, and now it's back. They've tried it again. Now they're sending you to hospice care, which means that they've done everything they can. So do you believe that doing more of something will make a difference? instead of doing it differently. So then I just ask him again, what, if you were to write right now a script of your life, what would you say you don't want to do anymore? What, what, no matter how you've done it in the past, tell me what you don't want to do. And they start to think, and you start to see the pain. And I've had people break out crying and because... They've been doing the things that were important for other people to respect them and identify them as, oh, there's Joe. Joe's always counted on, you know, he'll do blah, But did anyone ask Joe, what do you really want to do? What don't you want to do? And I make a list of both. No, tell me what you want to do. Tell me what you don't want to do. So we're going to go from we're not going to do any of these things anymore to we're going to start doing all these things. Now, suddenly that changes the DNA. Because we now know from epigenetics and energy work that you can actually take a thought and change your DNA at a very functional level. And so the whole energy is upon the future that you would love to have, but not with the thought that death is always present, so why even be optimistic? I'm going to die. The doctors tell me I'm going to die. Well, then we've got to stop believing in the authority figures being a greater uh, insightful measure than our own intuition and spiritual values. So then we take that journey on how sacred is our life? Has it been? How inclusive has it been? How optimistic have we been? How much of what we've limited ourselves to in life has been because we've had fear, insecurity, uncertainty, guilt, and shame that create a barrier around it, that codify us into we're no better than the insecurities we were conditioned to get from our parents. So we, we open that door. So life is about opening new doors and closing old ones that we no longer want to go back through. So that's the meaning of my life. And within that, I have to maintain my own balance. I have to do my own exercising, keep myself physically fit, my own uh, spiritual work, uh, my 
the, the intellectual work of, of creating the commentaries that I present every day on the show, um, doing the creative work by using the documentary medium to share a message. So if I do a, a documentary on Poverty, Inc., which I did, uh, it's not about winning an award or it's not about saying, I'm a documentarian, look at my film. Instead, it's about, I want to show you some of the people I've selected, 41 people, who are giving you their perceptions of how we got into this mess and how to keep from getting back in it and how to get out of it. So again, it's a tool. The radio show is a tool. Uh, so therefore, I don't identify as a broadcaster. I don't identify as a nutritionist. I don't identify as a dietitian. I don't identify as a running coach, yet I've had 32,000 people I've helped train to get through the marathons. I've won the Jamaica Marathon, won a gold in the Jamaica Marathon, the Los Angeles Marathon. I love doing marathons. But that was a passage. And what is life? In my world, I think of the passages that I come to accept as this passage is over. Appreciate the lessons you've learned. Forgive the pain in it. And now open a door and let's start a new passage. Therefore, the older you get, you're not limiting your perception of how much quality of life is left. Most people, they look in a mirror, they see the grain, they see the confusion, they feel the pain, they start seeing people who've died that were important to them and pets and, and they think, my God, when is my time coming? And instead of living with that kind of inevitable angst and apprehension, I say start a new chapter where you're in control of this chapter, not your fear, not your insecurity, not what you were attached to, because too often we stay too long at the party. And every January 1st, I decide if this is the year, I'm going to make a change. And if so, I want to get ahead of it and make my changes. And sometimes that means no longer having the people who are in your life in your life this time. And it's not about blaming them, and it's not about anger. You have to do everything with a sense of appreciation. And I'll say to people, I appreciate what we shared for however long that that sharing was. But now the next stage of my life, uh, I will not be sharing that with you. Now, if they want to know why, I'll, I'll explain to them. Uh, and sometimes you look back and think, well, did I, did, I, did I think that that person was no longer able to harmonize with me? Because sometimes we get so familiar with people, we lose the appreciation of how unique they are. And I look for the uniqueness in people. And it's not about their success that makes them unique. So for me, I would rather be alone because I don't feel lonely because I have so many things to appreciate. And I bond with that the place I'm in because an environment itself, just going out and, and looking in the fields and the trees and water, you develop a kinship for nature. And otherwise, you live in a city like New York City, Manhattan, and I've had an apartment there for a long time. And I'll walk down Amsterdam, and I did this not long ago, just, just as COVID was starting. And it was noisy, it was smelly, it was dirty, the streets were grimy, there were garbage bags, the whole block on Amsterdam. And here are all these people enjoying their meal in, a, in outdoor restaurants. And I'm thinking, my God, do they not look at the environment in which they're eating their meal? And the answer is no. We maladapt to our environment more often than not. So the next day I was down in Florida, and I went out 
to, uh, to have a meal, a vegan meal, and it was a beautiful environment with palm trees and beautiful uh, orchids and bougainvillea out of vases with all the pinks and the fuchsias. And it was just pristine air, and I'm thinking, what a difference. What if I could have invited all those people on that one block who were having a good time, but they were disconnected from the environment? And what happens is we frequently disconnect so much from the environment that we don't even speak to our own neighbors. We disconnect from the importance of, of looking at everything with our environment and saying, uh, is this the right place? And for me, when it's no longer the right place, then I'm going to leave it. So I believe that you've got to – you grow and you're happier and grounded when you know that, that that chapter of your life is over. Appreciate it, even the pain, because pain will allow us to pay attention to what didn't work and how we got out of balance. And health is balance. When everything is in balance, you can't have disease. You'll manifest wellness but not disease. When you're out of balance is when disease. That's when bankruptcies happen. That's when divorces happen. That's when conflicts happen. That's when bad choices happen when we're out of balance. When we're morally out of balance, we'll steal. Uh, not everyone, but that's when people do steal, when they betray you know, the people that have trusted them. Well, when you're in a relationship and someone cheats on you, that, that clock has expired. Time to say, I'm going to be in a relationship where I don't have to be concerned that someone's going to cheat on me. So these are just some of the ideas of who I am and how my mind thinks and how I, how I go through a day where I'm not going to get down and out and feel depressed because I don't absorb other people's negative energy. I try to stay neutral on crisis and look at the facts and simply say, okay, it's not good what's happened. What lesson did we learn so we prevent this from happening and we can get beyond this? And if people say, well, it's easy for you to say, no, it's no easier for me to say than you to say. Do you think when you watch Fred Astaire dance, let's say one of the greatest dances I've ever seen is, um, is when he was dancing in Begin the Begin uh, with Eleanor Powell, in my opinion, the greatest female dancer in history. Rita Hayworth were close to her. They both had that phenomenal charisma and energy. Um, but in a later, and it was just perfection, just Google Begin the Begin with uh, Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire. It's about four minutes long, more or less. I, I, saw an, I saw an interview with her years later where she said that for two weeks during a long day, all they did was practice their hand movements. Now, in Hollywood, when you're on a set and you're rehearsing, it's about a 10, 12-hour day. So you're looking at spending over 80 hours to learn just to how to harmonize your hands. And I don't know how long it took them to get their you know, feet uh, routine together, but when you watch it, Astaire didn't like cuts. He didn't like you to cut to the head and the feet. And, you know, one scene, you see the whole body. That means they had to do it to perfection. But to get to what we perceive as perfection, you had to have dozens and dozens and dozens of cut, stop, cut, stop. All right, they'll do it again. And they made they worked it until it was done. And now when we go see them and we see someone who's giving an Academy Award performance, we don't realize how many takes it took. When we're seeing someone do something right, we don't know how long it took them to get to that place. We take everything between them starting and them completing for granted. 
where life is a process. So every day, you can't take what you've done in the past for, for granted. You can't take people for granted. You have to renew the energy so you harmonize throughout that time in that relationship. And that's what I do. I simply, every day I try to harmonize with whoever's in my life or no one's in my life. Then I've got these wonderful creatures that I rescue, like little monkeys and, and feral cats and, and zebras and giraffe, whatever the animal you know is coming from a bankrupt zoo or whatever. And I find them, bring them here, give them a loving home until they have health and happiness back if they've been traumatized with lots of love, given their a sense of their phenomenal sentient love, and then find them a loving home for life. Well, I think most people would be very happy if they had a loving home for life. But we don't look at what does it mean to have a loving home for life. What ingredients have to go into that? Well, balance has to go into it. You can't be obsessed by working or being overly responsible. You have to do everything so that you maintain positive harmony. So there's always time for you. Otherwise, you end up being a martyr. Otherwise, you end up being, you know, one of these sad sops who always looks at themselves as if, oh, woe is me. I'm going to go to heaven because I've suffered so much. No, <laughs> no, no. Don't be a martyr. Live with balance. And if you do, then you're going to have a longer life and a healthier life. And select only those people and places and times and events and things to do that excite the imagination, that inspire us to a higher level of interest, and then work with people, be understanding and compassionate with people, be empathetic with people, but also, it's just like running. Uh, I'm, I'm a world-class athlete. I've won over 640 races. I'm training now to do the uh, championship, state championship races, and, and I'm hopeful to break a couple records of my own uh, because it means that I'm getting faster which is also part of the whole anti-aging process is show that the older you get, you can actually get stronger in many ways and faster. You don't have to become a stereotype if everything breaks down. Um, but in the process of doing that, I don't want to overdo anything and therefore imbalance something else that's important in my life. So value everything that allows you to maintain your humanistic values, your spiritual values, uh, and reverence for all life. So at my table, Everybody has a seat. No one in my entire life has ever been excluded because their ethnicity or culture, uh, their age, their income, their education. That is irrelevant to the fact that I view people as sacred until they choose not to be viewed as sacred. But otherwise, that's their choice. My choice is to uh, look for the best in all people. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. You know, you, you have seen so much injustice and fought it and so much evilness do you ever get angry anger is not a positive virtue but outrage is rage is destructive anger is destructive outrage allows you the composure not to become the energy that you disdain so i can be outraged by something but I'm not going to go out and scream and yell. If I'm, I'll give you one example. I heard from a listener that there was going to be a, a bill passed and then going to be signed immediately through the legislature in New York that all people working in any hospital setting, medical setting, nursing home setting, had to have four H1N1 shots. 
and each of those shots contained 25 micrograms of mercury. That's 100 micrograms of mercury. That's thousands of times more mercury in the body than what even the EPA considers safe. There was no hearings on it. And this was a Thursday, and I heard about it, and I told my audience, join me to go up to Albany tomorrow and protest. Well, in less than about 15 hours, we had arranged buses, uh, artists, including uh, Lane Ryan and other artists in my audience, John Q. They did artwork in protest. Uh, I got a group of people. I said, do you have suits? Do you have business outfits? Yes. Then you 20 people, you're, you got, you're on a special mission. When we get up to Albany, you're going to take these papers, and every member of the legislature, you're going to hand them. Now, you're going to get right in because you're going to look like you work there. And so I gave 115 studies on a CD that showed that mercury was a neurotoxin in any amount, and therefore these people should not uh, be having um, this mercury in their body. So that said, the next day we had 1,300 listeners from my audience show up in Albany. I had one group of people go by a restaurant that I had at the time, and we filled up about, I think it was 1,500 uh, sandwiches. They were up all night making the sandwiches and the salads and the juices. And, uh, and I called, and I got two uh, people I knew who flew in, uh, Dr. Eisenstein, Eisenstein. And so we got up there. And so we made the whole steps of the uh, Capitol up in Albany had posters. And then we set up a podium. We had called the news media. About four major network news showed up. And instead of yelling and condemning and banging the you know, podium, it was that we're going to have a bill passed without any public exposure. And we have articles and we have medical doctors here who will state that this is extremely irresponsible and dangerous. Well, the media then talked with the doctors, top medical doctors who were part of the government, and so after about an hour of us having all these speakers, uh, we were invited inside. So I went in, sat down with them, and the doctors, what do you want? And they, oh boy, if you could see body language, man, they were anal. Oh, they were anal. And uh, I said, we simply want an open, hearing. So those of us who understand the dangers of vaccines uh, can present our information. And that's what, by law, you're supposed to have, not rush something through in, in the, you know, at the last moment where no one's aware of it. So that was achieved, and we had hearings. Now, the interesting thing is several weeks later, there was hearings, and there were all these doctors and, and uh, people representing the state. Now, I got there at 8 o'clock in the morning because you sign up, and based upon how you sign up and the time you sign up is when you're called to talk. And I think they give you three minutes. So anyhow, I was first. No one even was there, and I signed up 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, they started the hearings at about, I think it was 9 o'clock, and I should have been the first one called, but I wasn't. In fact, the media was there early, and all the pro-vaccine advocates were there, and they all got a chance to make their talks. No one who represented a counterpoint of view was early in the talk. Then they took a break for lunch and came back. Again, I 
I stayed because I didn't want anyone saying, calling my name, saying, oh, he's not here and scratch me. At 8 o'clock that night, I was the last person they finally said, okay, um, let's wrap this up. There was no one there. One guy uh, was over in the corner, and that was it. So I got up there, and I was outraged. I was outraged by the fact that these doctors did not know any of the vaccine science. They did not have toxicological data, yet they were willing to sacrifice doctors, nurses, orderly, anybody working in a hospital by giving them huge amounts of mercury that would have gone to different cells, including their heart, their brain. And so I presented all the scientific evidence, and I went on for 22 minutes. Now, I didn't know it that this guy was filming me. He, he had a little camera filming, and so that was it. And I said, I'm open for any questions, challenges. Nobody said a word, <laughs> nothing. So, okay, so I just got and left. Well, this got posted, and it went viral. Wow. Hundreds of thousands of people downloaded it and watched it, and then people started to write about mercury toxicity. Well, that outrage led to, uh, to this day, they have not been able to mandate the mercury vaccines um, mandated for everyone working in the hospitals. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's the second part of this. Not a single nurse, physician, or anyone working in the hospital actually showed up to protest. Now, this is a unique um, cognitive disconnect. So here are we, uh, scientists and professionals and lay people, fighting for the protection because we weren't the ones going to be vaccinated, but the doctors would, and yet the doctors held us in disdain because they were all pro-vaccine. So we were trying to protect the lives and welfare of those who looked at us as quacks, nut jobs, and kooks, and yet all the science, all of it, showing that vaccines have never been proven safe was on our side. We had all the peer-reviewed PubMed scientific literature on the toxicology. And the Supreme Court of the United States said that vaccines are inherently unsafe. That's the Supreme Court in a unanimous statement. And so I've written 66 articles on the dangers of vaccines. Now, I'm not anti-vaccine. I simply want a higher standard for determining the safety of a vaccine. And there's no real good safety because they're not using the standards but isn't it interesting that, A, by outrage, we created something that protected the, the public. B, the public we actually protected don't like us. C, they didn't come to fight their own battles. And D, that is similar to a Stockholm syndrome at the professional level. That's just one example. I, I You know, Gary, before, as I was preparing for this interview, I went on my computer, you know, you can go on search, and I typed Gary now, and wanted to see if I have any, any if I written uh, about Gary now, anything, or I have any uh, things that you said, and here's what I found. The end, I don't know if you remember saying it, the end of all disease for human species would constitute a state of total alignment between one's purpose and one's way of life. Do you remember saying it? Because no. it's with Gary now. 
but I do a lot of statements. I've yeah. written over 800 but, uh, articles. So. When I read this statement, Gary, it reminded me of something. It reminded me a couple of weeks ago, a very nice lady, Carol, from Brooklyn, called during my show. And she asked about how to find the purpose of life. Because to, uh, like you say, alignment between one's purpose and one's way of life. But to align them, you need to have purpose. And Carol asked this wonderful question, how do you find the purpose of life? And I remember I spent maybe five, ten minutes giving her some ideas. Uh, but I would love you to help me out. I would love you to expand on this. How do you see people finding purpose in life if they do not have it? It seems like you know with great clarity of what, what your purpose is. But if a person is doubting or didn't find it yet, how do they go about finding the purpose of life? You ha we all start our journey at the same place, e even though we're all uniquely different, because we all have certain human concerns. Take away the veneer, uh, take away the faux finishes, take away all that we try to do to disguise the limitations of where we're at in our life, the egos, the bantering, the excessive masculinity posturing. And all we are are people wanting to get along. I mean, if I took a farmer from Russia, from China, from Syria, from Lebanon, from Venezuela, and I brought them all to the United States, they would all be considered combatants and enemies of the state because they're from these regimes that we have dictated are are all the enemy. And yet talk with those farmers, with other farmers from the United States, and they will have far more in common than they will have against each other. People will seek a commonality, a center point to where they can gravitate to have something that they say, me too, I, I'm, hey, and now you have a conversation. So we begin to look at what is the conversation we must have? What is the center of gravity and the spiritual nature of our very existence? Well, it is what requires us to be fulfilled. Well, a sense of purpose, meaning. Then what would we ideally like to do? And that is not an intellectual discourse. It is one that comes from our intuition, and that is what in your heart of hearts do you feel an affinity for? What we love to do? So I ask people, if you could do anything, and almost always they tell me first, they, their preface is, the preamble to their talk, uh, I would love, but I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm not educated in that, I don't have any success, and so I can't do that. I mean, I gotta pay the bills, I gotta, you know, I, and suddenly they shift from their ideal to that which is structural. So I say, okay, so now you live on Long Island, and you have an hour and a half commute each way, that's three hours a day, and you work in an office that you're not happy about, that is not a healthy environment, and you're doing work that is not constructive to any practical means, so that you can live on Long Island in a house that you have no time for, energy for, and by the time you get home at night, you're tired, and so you're in a routine, this ritual, that somehow your standard of living becomes the meaning of your life instead of quality of life, that you can change where you live, therefore the right place. So if you want to have happiness, don't work. Nobody ever moved to New York for happiness or health. Nobody. You moved to New York for opportunity. 
opportunity to see the greatest cultures, opportunity for business, opportunity uh, for relationships, opportunity to give creative projects, life. It's unique in what it's capable of birthing. But at the same time, uh, it's that it's, it's also rough around the edges. It is highly mercenary. Uh, it is not forgiving. So you have to understand, if you don't have the right energy, don't live in New York. Don't live in a lot of places where you're going to be always making an excuse for why your life isn't the way it should be. Instead, go back to what I said. What do you ideally feel you'd love to do? I'll give you an example of this. True story. A very close friend of mine, uh, a lawyer, very successful lawyer, handsome guy, great athlete, um, and we hung out together every day. And he had a great sense of humor, very upbeat and fun. And one day, um, we were running in the park, and he said, I got a choice. I can move into this new apartment that's going to cost a lot of money, and therefore I got to put a lot more hours in at work, and I'm bored to death with my work. I'm just bored to death. There's no excitement. There's no creativity. I just I'm, I work on contracts. And uh, I said, so what would you ideally like to do? He said, well, I'm kind of embarrassed to say. I said, I'm your friend. Tell me. He said, well, I've always had this desire to uh, work in with animals. You mean in a vet shelter? No, something out in nature, you know, one of these sanctuaries. I said, okay. And where, of all, this, all the places you've been in the country, where would you like to be? He says, I'm, a, I'm like George O'Keefe. I love the West. I love New Mexico, and I love uh, up in Sedona. These are the places that are kind of mystical to me. I'd love to be out there. I said, then why don't you do it? And then came all the excuses why you can't. Now, where your energy goes tells me whether you're coming from a conditioned insecurity or whether you're really freeing yourself. And a lot of people will tell you why they can't do something that means they've already made it to mind they're not going to. And the moment someone says it's going to take time, it'll never be enough time to do it. That's an excuse we give. So instead I said, okay, why don't you do this? Why don't you take a sabbatical? I said, your friend from college owns the law firm, or his father does, and so take a sabbatical. So he took a sabbatical. I didn't hear from him for about seven months. And just as a coincidence, I was on a book tour. And I published over 103 books, by the way. And yeah, 103. And I'm writing four right now. Uh, in any case, um, I'm I go into Santa Fe, and I'm doing a lecture that night. And I go by a health food store, and there's a guy with a beard, long hair, behind the counter. And I look, and I said. What? And I mentioned his name, and he looked up at me, just had this big smile. It was him. Uh, he worked in a health food store, but also he volunteered uh, with a place that had exotic animals that people could no longer have, and they rescued him. So he worked three days in the store, mainly at the juice bar, and the other days he worked at the animal shelter. And he said he has never been happier in his life. He's not coming back to the city. And he did come back to the city, but it was about 10 years later, and he came back and did other things. Uh, and it was not about the money because he wasn't making any money. 
It was about having quality of life. Now, to have a quality of life, more often than not, you either have to make a lot of money so you're not, uh, you're not burdened with working in places you don't like, with people you don't associate with, wouldn't associate with, long commutes, or you have to lower your cost of living, which means you've got to move to places that are not expensive. And right now, COVID has forced a lot of people to move to more rural environment. There are over a 1,000 intentional communities around the United States, and most of the people moving to those intentional communities realize they would rather have a quality of life without a high standard of living, be around other people that they can share a lot in common with, and still maintain some sense of identity and autonomy of self. And almost all those people are grounded in the mindful meditations that allow them to decompress from the pressures of trying to perform for other people, the expectations that you must live a certain way and do certain things or you'll disappoint people. In fact, that is so true that all the nurses that I know who've worked in hospice care, and that's a lot of them, say one of the very last things that a person utters before they pass is, I wished I would have done it differently, meaning I wish I'd lived my life differently. And yet these people were, they did everything they could to be good citizens, but Thoreau said it best. Thoreau said you cannot be both a good citizen and a good person. You must choose which. And I believe that we are conditioned to be good citizens. And right now, with uh, the cancel culture and all of the highly charged uh, ethnic uh, challenges, that people are confused. I'm a good citizen. I haven't done anything wrong. Why am I being punished? Instead of being a good person. And a good person simply makes the right choices based upon a combination of intuition and common sense and reason. And so that's the journey I try to help people take. And for a lot, it's liberating. It sometimes can be scary because at some point, you've got to surrender the past in order to be present. You can't live your life looking in the rearview mirror with every stage of every day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have only another five minutes, but I'm dying to ask you one more question. Hopefully we can squeeze it in. My son asked me uh, recently this question because we uh, oh, actually made the request. He said, Dad, you know, we spoke about uh, life being short. And he said, what if you know so many things? I want to learn so many things. Yes. What if you would die? What all the knowledge would go with you? Would you do me a favor? May you live a long life. It was a beautiful talk. He said, I want you to live till the age of 99, but I want you to start writing a book for me. Write things that you would want me to inherit. And, you know, I started writing slowly. Like, you know, it's more important to be kind than to be right. Things like this. Just what would you, if you, yeah, I know you can think spontaneously and come up with ideas. What you would you want to write to to humanity or whoever, if they would ask you this question. I don't believe that any of us can write a proper legacy in note. I believe we live our legacy each day and people will know us by how we touch them. Some we will touch their imagination, some their heart emotions, some their intellect, and some physically. And that's what we will remember about the experience and they will remember about us. And 
And those experiences can last a lifetime because we are nothing more or less than the most remarkable moments of our lives. So the idea is stop thinking that all your remarkable moments when you were young and adventurous, be a rebel. There is no limit. There is no law that says you're a certain age, therefore you cannot try, you cannot achieve, you cannot venture, you cannot risk. And without risk, there is no reward. So we must have the reward of having known that we had a chance and we did something, rather than playing it safe and backing through life, apologizing for any indiscretions. Life itself is an indiscretion. Do I trust any politicians? None. Do I trust anyone in the media? None. Do I trust, do I trust most of the scientific community, corporate America? No, no. So, but do I trust the ability of individuals who just want to be themselves to enjoy and engage in creating remarkable moments? You bet. And the person who has the courage to stand up and say, I'm in, that's the person who has identified that they are in that moment, they're on an experience. And those remarkable experiences are what we talk about as we get older. Those are the photographs we share with people saying, back then, and there's this. And, and I'm saying, keep that photo album in the closet and create living memory every day by being vital. Vitalism, something Thoreau, Maimonides, Socrates, uh, all engaged in being a vitalist, looking for the vital energy. Bring yourself up and have other people in the wave share it with you in the moment you're in. So the main message, if I understand, don't think about life, live it, make choices. Beautiful. After thank, all, thank you very much, yeah, Harry. I really you, appreciate Peter. coming to this interview. Uh, I, I have so many more questions, but uh, hopefully we may one day we'll have another opportunity. Thank you again. Uh, God bless you. And I just want to say to everybody, thank you very much for being with me today. And I hope I will have your attention next Tuesday. Uh, the best, all the best for you and peace to all who want to live in peace.